Welcome back. Here we are in part three of our Say What series, where we're navigating difficult conversations. And this week is my favorite week, because we get to put everything that we've looked at together. So as a reminder, where have we been throughout this series? In week one, we defined communication so that we could see all of its complexities and understand all that it impacts and all that goes into it. Then we looked at perspective-taking as an essential skill in good communication. Week two, we considered our communication climates. Can our relationships handle hard conversations? This is the bedrock of communication. And then we saw how to listen and speak in ways that minimize defensiveness and increase supportiveness. And here we are, week three, and we're going to look at how to prepare for and then organize and guide hard conversations. So I want to start with a little bit of self-compassion, because hard conversations are exactly that. <laughs> They're hard. And I texted this this week. I said, we can do hard things, but hard things are still hard. And I know that we get fearful and anxious as we lead into these conversations. And as we saw last week, we engage in emotional contagion. And so when we show up to conversations tense and fearful, we pass that along. And before you know it, we have two people having a tense and uncomfortable conversation, which is different than the open dialogue that we're looking to cultivate. So one of the best things that we can do in preparing for hard conversations is to debunk our fear of them. And this part is as much for me as for anybody because I hate, <laughs> I hate hard conversations. Oh, the irony of me standing up here saying, hey, let's all have these hard conversations. See, even since this series has begun, I've been engaging and challenging in hard conversations. And even still, I believe now, maybe more than ever, what I said from the beginning, which is that hard conversations, when handled well, the benefits supremely outweigh the costs. We just need to be reminded what those benefits are. So in hard conversations, we have an opportunity to improve our self-concept, meaning we get to grow in hard conversations. How many of you want to be right? <laughs> or maybe well-informed? Uh, who wants to be perceived well? Maybe a good friend, coworker, spouse? Yeah, me too. And ironically, oftentimes, that's why we shy away from hard conversations, because we don't want others to know what we don't know. And we don't want to rock the boat, make people uncomfortable. But if we actually look at what it takes to become well-informed, <clears throat> a good spouse, friend, boss, coworker, we know that it takes self-improvement. We have to grow if we want to become better. And we grow when our blind spots are revealed to us, when we see areas where we can improve. And this happens in hard conversations. How many times have you started a hard conversation to point out where you've hurt me, what you need to change, what I think you did wrong, and then what happens? <laughs> it comes right back at you. And they tell you what you did to hurt them, where you're wrong, what you need to do different. Ooh, <laughs> right? That feels uncomfortable. 
But Julia Wood tells us that improving our self-concept is not facilitated by uncritical, positive communication. None of us grows and improves when we listen only to praise, particularly if it's less than honest. So when you're in conversation and you receive critical feedback, we need a mantra. So let's remind ourselves, I value growth, I value improvement. After week one, a really good friend of mine reached out to me, and she challenged me. She exposed one of my blind spots. And because I want to be perfect, at first I was like, oh, dang it. <laughs> and I could have responded defensively. I could have gotten embarrassed, shut it down, ended the conversation, moved on, not engaged with it. And on her side, she could have shied away from even initiating that conversation. She could have said, ah, oh, it doesn't matter, not mine. But instead, because we both engaged graciously and respectfully in the dialogue and in the conversation, it led to a really crucial element that I'm going to talk about today. And I would have totally missed it had she not reached out and had I not opened myself up to feedback. So when we go into hard conversations, let's manage our expectations. Oftentimes we say to ourselves, what if they say something that hurts me? What if they point out where I'm wrong? And what if I feel embarrassed? Friends, it's not what if. <laughs> it's when. This will absolutely happen. So expect the pushback. I don't say it'll happen because of something wrong with you, but rather to normalize this. It is a human experience. We all have blind spots. So we don't need to perceive it as a personal threat. Athletes, before big games, they visualize. They think about what's coming, and they tell themselves what they're going to do in response. And so this might sound kind of hokey, but we need to do the same as we prepare for hard conversations. Tell yourself, I'm excited to get some hard feedback. I'm excited to see a part of me that I haven't seen yet. Reframe pushback as growth. And honestly, assign the other person trusts you enough to be honest with you. <laughs> I know, I know it doesn't feel great. But we know the power of taking captive our thoughts. And we saw in week one that we get to select what we notice. So instead of selecting it and narrating it as a personal attack, frame it as an opportunity to grow. It's a huge benefit of hard conversations. <clears throat> Number two, we get an opportunity to improve our skill set. It gets easier over time. When I first began as an event manager, I would get so anxious when things would go wrong. Oh, the client's going to hate me. They're going to be so disappointed. They're going to tell me all the things I did wrong. I just wanted to like, close myself in my office and like, cry and throw up. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. That's exactly what happened. They were disappointed, pointed out my flaws, frustrated. But over time, what changed was my ability to navigate the conversation and steer it towards a positive outcome. And the more I did that, the easier it got and the less anxious I was. Practice makes perfect. Number three, hard conversations improve our relationships. When we do this hard work of engaging in these uncomfortable spaces, we have an opportunity to build trust with another person. We get to clarify 
what each other's behavior actually means. We can dive into the nuances of our differing opinions and beliefs, and this helps us to build accurate understandings of each other. That helps us to tell better stories and ultimately impacts how we feel about each other. It strengthens our relationship. And if you look at the other side, if you don't do that, if you don't clarify hurtful words or ideas that you strongly disagree with, then do those feelings just go away? No, they fester and they stay inside and we build full cases of resentment and create entire personas for people that might likely be wildly untrue, especially if we don't have a chance to clarify and address it. When this builds up, what does it eventually do? It explodes. And that is a hard conversation that is nearly impossible to salvage. Because when we explode, we do this thing called kitchen sinking. You throw everything but the kitchen sink at the other person. So you're talking about this week and in 2017 and that one time in seventh grade. <laughs> Whoa. How do you even get a grip on what you're actually talking about to move forward well? You can't. So if we let the steam out just a little bit at a time in engaging in uncomfortable conversations, it protects and preserves our relationships. A perfect example of the benefits of engaging well in hard conversations is Megan Phelps Roper. And if you're not familiar with her, Megan was raised in the Westboro Baptist Church, and she actively participated in extreme and hateful crusades against the homosexual community. She did this for the majority of her life. Now, regardless of where you land on the topic, what I want you to see is that hers is a story of a tremendously outspoken, hurtful, and polarizing belief that was ultimately changed. And why was it changed? Because the very people who had every right to speak to her hatefully chose instead to engage in the long, hard process of challenging and gracious conversations. This is what led to a complete 180 in her thinking and beliefs. So I'm gonna quote her a ton, just as a fair warning. You're gonna see her a lot in this, because quite honestly, her TED Talk is a stunning summary of everything that I've put together for us in this series. So when she talks about the importance of these hard, hard conversations, she says this. The good news is that it's simple, and the bad news is that it's hard. We have to talk and listen to people we disagree with. It's hard because we often can't fathom how the other side came to their positions. It's hard because righteous indignation, that sense of certainty that ours is the right side, is so seductive. It's hard because it means extending empathy and compassion to people who show us hostility and contempt. The impulse to respond in kind is so tempting, but that isn't who we want to be. We can resist, and I will always be inspired to do so by those people I encountered on Twitter, apparent enemies who became my beloved friends. So yeah, hard conversations are hard, but they strengthen our relationships, 
They help us to grow, and they are easier the more we practice them. But if you're like me, you're still nervous. <laughs> you still don't want to. And so because I'm speaking to you in a Christian context, I want to share with you some secret weapons we have. And these are our spiritual disciplines. So before going into hard conversations, seek out solitude. Time alone allows us to address our inner thoughts and consider our perceptions, open ourselves up to where we need to change. This ushers us into confession. What do we need to own in the conflict? When we cultivate a private habit of humility and confession, it will be so much easier to adapt that in interpersonal conversation. We've talked about prayer, and that's been your homework this whole time. Pray for the person, pray for the conversation. But it doesn't have to stop once the conversation starts. If things get kind of crazy and heated, send up those SOS prayers. God, help me to know what to say next. Give me wisdom. Help me to control my emotions. And ultimately, at the end of the conversation, on your drive home, pray that God would protect the other person and the words that you shared, that they would sow seeds of love and not discontentment. And lastly, worship. Worship is acknowledging and identifying who God is. So a lot of times, we don't have hard conversations because of things like this. Ugh, it's not worth it. That person's not worth it. They are who they are. They'll never change. Or this topic is too big. What is one conversation going to do to change anything? I don't need to address it. Dr. Tim Muehlhoff says, if your intrapersonal perception is laced with the idea that people cannot change, then reshaping your focus by worshiping God is crucial. Because the God that I serve is in the, is in the business of changing lives. And the God that I serve brings about miraculous healing and change. So you can count it off as a loss, or you can allow yourself to be part of that change and healing. Again, Dr. Tim Muehlhoff, he says, often God will use us as we communicate grace and compassion and offer blessing instead of insult to touch the hearts of those with whom we disagree. We can be part of this change. We just have to make ourselves available. So we tell ourselves, okay, hard conversations are good. I've all prayed up. Now it's time to start. Whether you are initiating or whether you're thrown into the conversation, let's first consider the settings, internal and external. Because these conversations are going to be hard enough. We don't need little things getting in there and making it more difficult. And we're going to call these little things noise. Noise is anything that causes a loss of information as it travels from source to destination. So for example, we have physiological noise, hunger, fatigue. If you're having a conversation that's heated and it just starts blazing through lunchtime, I would put good money on the fact that by the end, that conversation is tanking. Why? Because a third party has been invited to the conversation, hangry himself. <laughs> this is real. So if you are in control or if you notice, hey, we're getting hungry here, make changes. Have snacks and water available. Take care of basic needs. 
If you're getting tired, postpone. We get uh, less self-controlled when we're tired, right? There's some physical noise. Are you in a literally noisy place where you can't hear the other person? Are there kids clamoring for your attention? What's the temperature like? If it's really hot, people are more likely to be irritable and have a harder time focusing. Maybe there's some psychological noise, preoccupation. If you know that someone has a big interview coming up, don't schedule a hard conversation right before that. That's rude. <laughs> Work to minimize these elements and maybe postpone the conversation if needed. And when I say this, this is an opportunity to use that metacommunication that we talked about last week. If you get a text message and you think, man, this would be better done in person, or if somebody starts talking about something important and hard and you just change the subject, that creates space, a blank space for the other person to fill in their own explanations of what's happening. And if you're like me, that inner dialogue is not very kind. So do the other person a favor, and if you need to postpone or pause, let them know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Hey, do you mind if we pick this back up later? The kids are up and I want to be able to focus on you. Hey, thanks for your text. Let's schedule a time to talk about this in person. And lastly, when we look at noise, there's one very important element, and that is power dynamics. We need to be able to recognize the emotional and the societal contexts in which we're speaking. Who has the perceived power or privilege in this relationship or in this conversation? We're doing this equip series alongside the sermon series on race and racism. And so while all of this communication stuff is important to no matter what conversation you're having, it would be remiss of me not to speak very specifically about power dynamics and race. And knowing that the majority of my audience is white, I want to talk to us white people for just a second. We know from week one that communication is personal, systemic, and ongoing. So be aware of where you sit in a potential societal position of power. Are you white talking to a person of color? Are you male talking to female? Are you straight talking to somebody in the LGBTQ plus community? What is the other person's perspective and identity? Where do some of these interact and overlap? What we see is that in most controversial conversations, there is almost always an element of power that cannot be ignored. We need to be aware of this potential dynamic. And I say potential dynamic very much on purpose, because we know that communication is personal. Be aware that this could be a potential element in your conversation, but don't assume to know what the other person feels or why they're responding a certain way. This is where we find a very fine line between awareness and racism. If I lump all black people together, and I assume that they all have the same beliefs, thoughts, 
if I ap apply the same interpretation to every black person's response and behavior, that is actually racist in itself. Dr. Ibram Kendi, in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, tells us to be anti-racist is to de-racialize behavior, to remove the tattooed stereotype from every racialized body. Behavior is something humans do, not something races do. So just because somebody is black doesn't mean they feel the exact same way as the black influencer on your social media feed. Communication is personal. It is based on a personal understanding of the other person. It's dangerous to make assumptions, and it's dangerous to mind-read. So we have to ask, what are your thoughts? How has all of this impacted you? Learn about the other person's personal experience, just like you would for anyone else on any other topic. Because again, behavior is something specific to human beings, not to specific races. So communication is personal, it is also systemic. It's part of greater context. So as the person in a place of perceived privilege or social power, recognize that power and that that privilege comes with great responsibility. Well, that's not fair. I didn't choose this privilege. Why am I responsible for it? <laughs> Are you kidding? There's a lot that's not fair that hasn't been chosen. So sure, you might not have chosen your privilege, but there are several others who have not chosen their plight. We do, however, get to choose what we do with what we've been given. So as you hear someone else's experience, recognize that you might not be as weary or as hurt by the topic as the other person. This is an opportunity to leverage your privilege. You are in a position of privilege and power, so you do the heavy lifting in the communication. You go first. Initiate it. Initiate vulnerability and humility. Open the door to hard conversations by using your words. Say things like, hey, I'm open to being corrected. I want to be a place for these safe and hard conversations. Now, you might have opened the door, but the other person might not be ready to walk through, and that's understandable. So in that time, if you've opened the door, keep the door open. This is where we use our actions. This might look like patience, maybe absorbing some difficult emotion, listening more, working harder to understand the other perspective. This might be through conversations or through other outside sources. But as a person in power, it's very likely that your perspective is already being represented in way more spaces than the other person. Lead by being the first to hand over the mic. Communication is personal, systemic, and ongoing. It builds over time. 
recognize when you are interacting with emotional histories. What has your experience been? My experience is that as a white woman, I'm having my first hard conversations about race in my late 20s. I do not have the same emotional history on this topic as do many, many, many others in this country. I need to recognize that and understand that communication builds on itself over time. As a woman, I wasn't allowed to play basketball in elementary school. Why? Because the boys told me only the boys were allowed to play. And in the next 20 plus years, I would only have more emotion and more experiences add on to that same topic. So when the topic of gender inequality comes up, I might have to control more emotions. Be aware of when this might be happening and be kind. Do the heavy lifting. Become knowledgeable on the subject. Offer grace to the other person who has been fighting for longer than you. When a sub comes into a game with fresh legs, they are expected to do the hard work of hustling for all of their teammates who have been on the floor the whole time. So if someone gets heated or frustrated in your conversation, tell a better story. Start with your filters. Is this because of an internal flaw? Or is it because of external events that have happened? Is this behavior based on who they are? Or is it because of things taking place outside of their control? Lead with grace. Ask questions. Understand the emotional setting. Because that emotional setting sets the stage. Are we setting ourselves up for success or for failure? And on that note, if we want to set ourselves up for success, no surprise, we start by listening first. Proverbs 18.13 tells us, if anyone gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So not only is it morally just like a nice thing to do, <laughs> to listen first, but there's actually some logic behind it. Megan Phelps Roper tells us, when we engage people across ideological divides, asking questions helps us to map the disconnect between where our differing points of views are. That's important because we can't present effective arguments if we don't understand where the other side is actually coming from, and because it gives them an opportunity to point out flaws in our positions. But asking questions also serves another purpose. It signals to someone that they're being heard. And we saw last week, this is that acknowledgement. It's huge. So if we're going to start by listening first, we need to be aware of some obstacles, maybe some preoccupation, noticing your preferences, your sense of self. Suspend your judgment and your thoughts. Just wait your dang turn. You'll get a chance, but wait. We do this all day long, just browsing opinion after opinion after opinion. And so when we transfer this to an interpersonal conversation, we do the same. People express their opinions and we're like, cool, got it. Maybe we don't. Ask, hey, when you say defund the police, what do you mean? 
And lastly, we need to pay attention to pride. We'll have emotional reactions to loaded language. Pay attention if your pride's been hurt. Keep it in check. Maybe you're going in overly confident. Guys, listening well is hard work. It's exhausting. So give yourself grace. If you start to feel tired, know when to tap out and say, hey, let's continue this later. Do it well. So if we're going to start by listening, we need to know what questions to ask. And this framework comes directly from Dr. Tim Muehlhoff's book, I Beg to Differ. And if you don't read any other book that I've suggested, read this one. It's so important. So he tells us to start with, what does this person believe? <laughs> that might sound obvious, but more often than not, we just assume. When you're listening, what does this person actually believe? Suppress your desire to correct or push back because I know I have to say it again, wait your dang turn. <laughs> it's coming. Sit here. Gather facts. Ask clarifying questions. Offer some summary statements to make sure that you're tracking. You're going to hang here until we get to what we call the poetic moment. You see, most of us hold what we actually believe very close to our hearts. And so we talk out here about them. But when we're given a chance, to narrow in on what we actually believe, that's when we see into the other person's soul. That's the poetic moment. And oftentimes, it might be accompanied by some emotion. So listen and ask questions until you get there. Because from, from there, this ushers us in to question number two. Why do they believe what they believe? Megan Phelps Roper says, Assuming ill motives almost instantly cuts us off from truly understanding why someone does and believes as they do. We forget that they're a human being with a lifetime of experience that shaped their mind, and we get stuck on that first wave of anger, and the conversation has a very hard time ever moving beyond it. But when we assume good, or even just neutral intent, we give our minds a much stronger framework for dialogue. And that's what we want. We want dialogue. But too often, all that we do is trade conclusions. Here's a full thought. Here's a full thought. And we never consider the backstory and the intricacies of what we're talking about. We have all been shaped by realities. This includes your family of origin, maybe some important people in your life, or experiences that you've lived through. So if you want to understand why somebody believes something, tap into these shaping realities. Some examples. What relationships have had the biggest impact on you when it comes to this topic? Are there people that are currently influencing you on this subject? What experiences have led you to these beliefs? When we start asking these questions, this helps us to take on empathy. And now, I know a lot of people that like to say, oh yeah, I'm just not very empathetic. Sure, there are some people that have a natural propensity towards empathy. But empathy is something that we can learn to practice, too. So as you're listening to why somebody believes something, ask, how would I feel in this situation? What emotions are coming up when I'm considering this person's view. When we do that, 
that leads us nicely into question number three, which is where do we agree? Now that's scary because we assume that affirming part is condoning the whole, but that's not true. If the goal is to keep dialogue open, we need to start with where we agree. Megan Phelps Roper, we've broken the world into us and them. Emerging from our bunkers long enough to lob rhetorical grenades at the other camp. We write off half the country as out of touch liberal elites or racist misogynistic bullies. No nuance, no complexity, no humanity. Even when someone does call for empathy and understanding for the other side, the conversation nearly always devolves into a debate about who deserves more empathy. And just as I learned to do, we routinely refuse to acknowledge the flaws in our own positions or the merits in our opponents. Compromise is an anathema. We even target people on our own side when they dare to question the party line. This path has brought us cruel, snipping, deepening polarization, and even outbreaks of violence. I remember this path. It will not take us where we want to go. So if you're thinking, okay, I get why it's like a nice thing to see where we agree. It might make things a little more civil. Why are we actually doing this? If I can't get you on the heart side, let me appeal to your logic. Here's some science. In psychology, we see something called the rule of reciprocation. And this tells us that it's human nature to repay what has been given to us. We see this in marketing all the time. Somebody gives you something free, sure, I'll sign up for that, especially if they give you chocolate, right? How we start the conversation directly impacts the effectiveness moving forward. If you send somebody a text and you say, hey, I need to talk to you about something, <sighs> did you just feel the air get sucked out of the room? Because I did, right? That's going to immediately start a defensive conversation. And when you show up and you have a list of grievances and you give it to the other person, that makes them defensive, so they're going to lash out. They're going to say hurtful things to you. And honestly, what's even more important is that if you do that, you're probably going to get embarrassed because you could hand over a list of grievances and then find out about something in that person's life that you had no idea about. Oops. <laughs> this is why we start by listening, seeking to understand, and then fostering common ground. Again, Megan Phelps Roper coming in hot when my friends on Twitter stopped accusing and started asking questions. I almost automatically mirrored them. Their questions gave me room to speak, but they also gave me permission to ask them questions and to truly hear their responses. It fundamentally changed the dynamic of our conversation. Why? Because it's human nature to repay what's been given to us. And we see this in biblical principles. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Luke 6.31. We'll reap what we sow, Galatians 6, 7. Yeah, it doesn't always work instantaneously, but the Bible even accounts for that. A few verses later, it says, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
So again, this may not go as we want. It might be a slow process. But does that mean that we get a pass to just pull punches and say whatever we want then? You can do that, and you can go for that instant gratification. But it'll be that, instant and fleeting. Instead, let's go for the sustainable, long-term change. Back to last week, we talked about the social judgment theory. Change happens on a sliding scale, from rejection to acceptance, and it's gradual. We like to think that in one conversation, we will take somebody from rejection to acceptance. Whoop. But that doesn't work very often. So where are you on the person's sliding scale? You might be the one to get them from here right, to here. Make sure that whatever part you play, you are moving them towards acceptance and not further into rejection. So we've asked, what does this person believe? Why do they believe it? Where do we agree? And now it's our turn. Number four, based on all I've learned, how should I proceed? And here we really make two common mistakes. The first is that after hearing the other side, we decide not to bring up our side. This is me. I'm really good at getting the other side, but then I don't want to say my side. It might rock things up a little bit. But this is not an authentic representation of myself. It doesn't foster unity. And Megan Phelps Roper says, as kind as my friends on Twitter were, if they hadn't actually made their arguments, it would have been so much harder for me to see the world in a different way. We are all a product of our upbringing, and our beliefs reflect our experiences. We can't expect others to spontaneously change their own minds. If we want change, we have to make the case for it. So we need to show up authentically for ourselves. And then another common mistake is that we just hop in and we just decide, my turn now, I'm going to tell you how it is. This is hyper-authentic. And this actually ignores some biblical wisdom. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So don't undo all the hard work you just did. If you respond too honest, too bold, too brash, you'll stir up anger and undo the work you've done. So we need to ask ourselves when we think about how to respond, am I being responsible to myself? Am I being responsible to the other person? And am I being responsible to our relationship? Because when I don't share my side, I'm not being responsible to me, and that hurts us. And when I'm being too responsible to myself and not thinking about how that might impact you, that also hurts the relationship. Am I being responsible to myself, to the other, to our relationship? And so because we take on a person-centered form of communication, the question we're going to ask ourselves, this is a direct quote from Dr. Tim Muehlhoff, is this. With this person, at this time, under these circumstances, what is the next thing I should say? So let's break that down. With this person, have you learned something about the other person that you didn't know? Do you need to revisit your communication climate? Maybe work on acknowledgement, expectations, trust. The timing. We know that no conversation happens in a vacuum, so we need to consider the overall complexity of our lives. 
Is it tax season and you're talking to an accountant? If they've just given you an hour of your time, recognize that. Maybe this is not when you launch into your side. Mostly because they're not going to have the capacity to listen to you. They're going to be preoccupied. Consider the circumstances. Has the kid woken up from nap? Is it getting late at night? Again, you might need to postpone. And then the last question, what is the next thing I should say? B, <laughs> meaning one. I'm terrible at this. What is the one thing that you want to say? So sure, you might have a laundry list of ideas that you're like, man, we got to talk about all these things. That's fine, that's good. Bracket them and place them on a plate for later. Write them down, come back to them at a later time. So as we prioritize what we're going to say in response, we might need to consider, has the goal of this conversation shifted? Maybe you started with a topical goal. I want to discuss this idea, this opinion. And maybe after hearing the other side, that's still your goal. So you can say the one thing, that one element of your opinion. Maybe, as you've heard the other person, you're realizing, wow, this is way more complex than I realized. If that's the case, your goal might be to establish a process for future conversations. So that might look like saying, okay, there's obviously a lot to this topic, and I'm really glad we're having this conversation. Do you mind, would you be open to having one or two conversations a month moving forward? Maybe you say, okay, we obviously have very different beliefs. If I give you a book and you give me a book, let's read them and talk about it. Or maybe not a book, maybe a podcast. You can establish the process for the continued conversation. <clears throat> and lastly, maybe the goal has changed to a relational goal. When you give people space to express what they believe and why they believe it, they might share with you something that they don't share with others. Pay attention to that. Be aware of what's happening relationally. So you might need to confirm who you are in that relationship as a safe space. Bring up your differing viewpoint in a different conversation. But no matter what our goal is, we all have one non-negotiable goal. And that is that we were called by God to be gentle in our communication. Let's take ourselves right back to where we started. Words are powerful. So we need to use them well. Now, in all of this, I promised you a Q&A. And honestly, the questions that came up in conversation or over social media, a lot of them were addressed either in topic two or today and what I've said so far. But there is really one question that stands out to me. It's one that was posed to me from a friend, and I've been thinking over it a lot, because it's hard. And the question is, why should I take this approach if I'm the one who has been wronged or hurt? Hmm. Yeah, you're right. It's a big ask. And I could stand here, and I could appeal to our mutual Christian viewpoint, I could say, look at the example of Jesus, how love wins out in the end. But instead, I want to ask a question. When you have led with justified anger or pain, 
when you have accused maybe more than you've listened, what has been the response? Have you won anybody over from the other side? Or have you just gotten louder cheers from the people already standing with you? I'm not making a case here for how to have easy conversations. I'm simply presenting how to have effective and productive conversations that bring us closer. And it's a big ask. What we see in the example of Jesus is that the greater that you've been hurt or the greater that you've been marginalized, the louder your grace speaks. And so as we conclude, I want to speak to all of us, no matter what side you find yourself on, no matter what conversation. And I'm going to end with more words from Megan Phelps Roper. She says, the truth is that the care shown to me by these strangers on the internet was itself a contradiction. It was growing evidence that people on the other side were not the demons I'd been led to believe. I thought my rightness justified my rudeness. Harsh tones, raised voices, insults, interruptions. But that strategy is ultimately counterproductive. Dialing up the volume and the snark is natural in stressful situations. But it tends to bring the conversation to an unsatisfactory, explosive end. My friends on Twitter didn't abandon their beliefs or their principles, only their scorn. They channeled their infinitely justifiable offense and came to me with pointed questions tempered with kindness and humor. They approached me as a human being, and that was more transformative than two full decades of outrage, disdain, and violence. I know that some might not have the time or the energy or the patience for extensive engagement, but as difficult as it can be, reaching out to someone we disagree with is an option that is available to all of us. And I sincerely believe that we can do hard things, not just for them, but for us and our future. Escalating disgust and intractable conflict are not what we want for ourselves or our country or our next generation. Each of us contributes to the communities and the cultures and the societies that we make up. The end of this spiral of rage and blame begins with one person who refuses to indulge these destructive, seductive impulses. We just have to decide that it's going to start with us. I get emotional every time I read that. And so my question to you is, will you let it start with you? And with this charge, I want you to know that it's scary, but that you're not alone. If I haven't made it abundantly clear by this point, I am passionate and I care a lot about this topic. And so I'm gonna give you my Instagram handle, you know my name, shoot me a message on Facebook, because oftentimes our questions come up in the middle of conversations, and it would be an honor to wade through them with you, because the cause is worth it.
Thank you for this opportunity, and I can't wait to have further conversations.